So we appreciate y'all staying with us. Like I said, I just I just previewed our overtime. We've got a cool, we've got a good overtime lineup. I'm really excited Absolutely. for that conversation with Mark Dudzik. We will open the phone line so you can call in if you've got a question for us. Uh, the phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. Stay tuned. We're going to take a break really quick, and we will be right back with the rest of overtime. Folks, welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. We are now in overtime, the second half of the program, where we are online only. Um, If you're watching the stream, if you're watching us live, uh, like and subscribe and um, share all those good things if you haven't yet. We've got 14 people watching and 14 likes. Okay. Okay. That's fine. <laughs> it's acceptable. One to one ratio. You passed. You passed. So, uh, so Adam, let's break down these amendments. Um, what's what's up? What's what's going on? What's going on with the amendments that's going to be on my ballot? Alrighty. So. Let me first say I've already voted. I voted absentee. I am uh, one of the folks working as a poll worker on Tuesday. Never done that before. It should be an interesting experience, to say the least. But uh, as I voted, I, of course, had to fill out a very long ballot and flip to the back. I uh, have a sample ballot here. For those of you watching, you can see kind of what it looks like. Um... Basically, all of your candidates are going to be on the front of the ballot. Until you get to about the bottom right corner, there will be a question about the Constitution. Um, Then flip it over on the back, there are 10 amendments to the Constitution that are on the ballot. Uh, There's a lot we could say about why do we have to do that. Jacob mentioned it uh, a little bit before the break. This is the longest Constitution in the world. It is a completely ridiculous document. And we lack home rule in the state of Alabama. So as with uh, almost every election, there are constitutional amendments on your ballot that have absolutely nothing to do with the county you live in. And I'll get to that in just a sec. So polls open Tuesday from 7 to 7. If you are in line at 7 p.m., you can vote. Do not, do not give up. Do not be deterred. You can vote. 
If you're in the polling place and something goes sideways and for whatever reason you're being told you can't vote, uh, request a provisional ballot and deal with the Board of Registrars uh, after the fact. Uh, but make sure you do exercise your right to vote. And um, on that note, I, I know that there are folks listening who uh, are probably pretty disengaged from the process, are very cynical about voting, and believe me, I am uh, one of those people. I'm incredibly cynical about the process and about the candidates that we have to choose from. But you know what? Folks fought and died for the right to vote, and I'm going to take it as an opportunity to exercise my right, even if that means I have to write in a lot of writing candidates on the ballot to feel okay about it. So, that preamble out of the way, the first thing you need to look for is the Constitution of Alabama of 2022. That will be more than likely on the front of your ballot. And essentially what this is, is a uh, not necessarily a rewrite of the Constitution, but recompiling the Constitution in a more logical order, uh, deleting sections that have been repealed, and removing some racist language uh, that is still in the document. It does not change the substance of the Constitution. So let me be clear about that. Uh, we're not getting a, you know, a new Constitution in terms of the practical impacts. Uh, it really is just changing some wording around, getting, ri get, getting rid of some of the old racist language that is left over from the documents past. Uh, Alabama Rise strongly urges people to vote yes. Um, so does the League of Women Voters in Alabama, the Limestone County Democrats, and, and many other organizations are big yes votes for the Constitution reorder. Flip the page and you're going to get to the Ten Amendments I've mentioned. Uh, probably the most uh, publi publicity has gone to Amendment 1, Anaya's Law, uh, which is regarding bail restrictions. Um, there was a very tragic murder that happened with Anaya Blanchard, and you know, as tragic as that is for, for that family, um, what we're looking at is a change to the criminal justice system. And so there are some folks who are criminal justice reformers who are very skeptical of this amendment. And essentially what we're doing is, if this were to pass, it would add about a dozen charges that could make a person ineligible for bail. And there would there's a companion bill that's already passed the legislature that would take effect if this amendment passes, which sets out the process for the preliminary due process hearing on whether or not you are eligible for bail. So the question is, do you trust Alabama's judges, the current Alabama criminal justice system, the current Alabama incarceration system, to potentially add more people ineligible for bail? Uh, the League of Women Voters of Alabama did not take a position on it. Uh, I do know the Limestone County Democrats were opposed to Amendment 1. Uh, Amendment 2 a little less controversial. It's just about broad broadband infrastructure, and that allows cities and counties to basically work that the way they do economic development. Uh, very little opposition there. Everyone uh, I've looked at is a yes vote for that, including the, the women voters in Limestone County Dems. Amendment 3, also a justice-related uh, situation. This requires the governor 
to notify the victim's family should they choose to commute a death penalty, death penalty sentence. And this all started because of uh, years ago, I believe it was our old friend Fob James, actually, who commuted a death sentence but did not tell the victim's family that he was doing so. Um, and it led to the person being put, being eligible for parole. Uh, that person has not been granted parole, but the family uh, has kind of pushed this this constitutional amendment. So the governor, if the governor wants to commute a death sentence, they would have to notify the impacted victims. Uh, and if they fail to do so, it could revoke the commutation of the sentence. And Amendment 3, no position was taken by the women voters of Alabama or the Limestone County Democrats. Amendment 4, and let me back, uh, one last thing on Amendment 3. That was the last time a governor has commuted a death sentence. So um, I cannot remember when Fob James was governor, but it has certainly been a couple decades at the very least. Let's see, Bob Riley was governor when I moved to Alabama in 2001, and James was before him. So it's not an issue that comes up very often, let me say that. Uh, Amendment 4, this one is drawing some opposition from, from different organizations, including uh, Democrats, including the League of Women Voters, because Amendment 4 says that election law changes within six months of a general election could not happen. All right, so the legislature could not make new rules for the general election within the six months leading up to that election. They couldn't make rules in uh, August that would impact the November election. And the reason there's some opposition to this constitutional amendment is because it would tie the hands of the legislature should there be any emergencies, like, I don't know, global pandemics that were to happen, uh, that might require some adjustments in our process uh, to vote. We've been there. We've seen that. Uh, so Amendment 4 is on the ballot. I voted no. Amendment 5 is about deleting some outdated, obsolete terminology around orphans business. Not a very controversial one. I voted yes. Uh, League of Women Voters, Limestone County Democrats, other organizations are also voting yes on that. Uh, another non-controversial one, Amendment 6, that's regarding local municipality ad valorem taxes. I supported that. Um, Lumpstone County Dems and League of Women Voters are also su in support of that amendment. Amendment 7 eliminates the requirement to use the largest, distri the largest distribution newspaper for advertising economic and industrial development. So the law currently states um, that when there's economic industrial development happening, the government must notify us and they must use the largest circulating newspaper in your area. This amendment, if passed, would basically take out that word largest for all intents and purposes. And so you could see some shenanigans where, you know, local politicians decide to advertise with a, a newspaper that has, you know, maybe 5% of the readership of the other newspaper just so they could technically comply with the law while being less transparent. 
so I know the League of Women Voters opposes this amendment. The Lumsden County Democrats opposes this amendment. Uh, I did as well. I voted no for Amendment 7. Amendment 8 and Amendment 9 are local issues. So unless you live in Shelby County, Jefferson County, or Tuscaloosa County, it doesn't really concern you. It's about their sewage systems. I personally left those blank. And most organizations are taking no position on those two amendments. But there again, that's the absurdity of Alabama's system. In Athens, Alabama, I'm voting on what kind of sewage they're going to have in Jefferson County. And finally, Amendment 10. Amendment 10 is essentially to keep the Constitution updated. So if the Constitution of 2022, that first item we talked about, if that does in fact pass, Amendment 10 kicks in to logically update the Constitution as new amendments are passed. Again, it doesn't change the substance of, of the documents. It doesn't write new laws. The legislature writes new laws. Uh, it's basically an um, organizational amendment. So, if you lost track with me, I'll tell you what I did. I voted yes for the Constitution reorder or rewrite. That's on the front of your ballot. I Personally, I voted no on Amendment 1. I respect those who feel differently, but I don't trust Alabama's criminal justice system. I voted yes on Amendment 2. On Amendment 3, I think I actually left it blank uh, because it seems to be a non-issue. Uh, Amendment 4, I opposed. Amendment 5, I voted yes. Amendment 6, I voted yes. Amendment 7, I opposed. Uh, 8 and 9, I left blank because they didn't concern my county. And Amendment 10, I voted yes. And there you go, folks. Those are the 10 amendments and the Constitution rewrite that's going to be on your ballot on Tuesday. And uh, we were talking before the show, and I was sharing with Jacob that I got to pick between 26 offices. I had 26 offices were on my ballot. 10 of those were unopposed. With only a Republican running. Only seven of the 26 offices had a Democrat running. Twelve of the 26 on my ballot had a Libertarian running. So, uh, But do keep in oh, mind, man. folks, that you have the right to vote for a write-in candidate. And you will have that option for all of those. I had it for all 26. Uh, you have to fill in the bubble and then write out the person's name. You must mm -hmm. do both. So, uh, I don't believe in leaving unopposed seats on the ballot. So, uh, I'm sorry to whatever po poor public servant has to count my ballot and look at and record all the names I wrote in. Uh, but, I'm going to exercise my right to vote and I'm going to vote for people uh, that I can halfway believe in. And so, sometimes that means right your own. <laughs> there you go. Your own name or your daughter's name. Yeah. yeah, Ida may have gotten a vote for county commission chairman. And frankly, I trust her judgment. <clears throat> yeah, I think I welcome the she, rule of, of Ida Keller. Yeah, I mean, well. she knows about fairness, yeah. sharing, being nice. You know, we could use that on the county commission. Yeah, so, absolutely. There you go. There's your, uh, there's your voting rundown for Tuesday, all of our Alabama folks. And wherever you're listening, please go vote. Uh, I know it can be frustrating, um, and I know the results are probably 
going to be disappointing, but uh, exercise your right to vote. People fought very hard to mm-hmm. get you that ex- that that right that you can exercise. If you choose not to vote, I respect your choice. I'm not going to shame you. I'm not going to blame you. I'm not going to be mad at you or cuss you or do any of those things because I don't think it's helpful. Uh, if you decide that on Tuesday you have better things to do and you don't want to vote, that's on you. I just really encourage everyone to make every effort that you can. If you can make it to the polls, please do so. If you have a complication, vote a provisional ballot. Yeah. Appreciate that, Adam. So uh, we've been seeing Starbucks workers, you know, taking stands against uh, against their bosses, against management, coming together, and, and they're now unionized at, at over 250 locations. They've had 300 union elections or, there, or 300. Uh, and I think we have some news about that locally, right? Um, have I not mentioned on the show that yet? I don't think so. Oh We've man, got, we got some. Oh wow, yeah. So wow, we haven't we haven't mentioned that on the show yet. I can't believe that. Um, I guess that I guess it just happened last week. Wow, that's crazy. But yeah, uh, Scottsboro Starbucks workers won their union election. Scottsboro Starbucks workers won their union election. So last we left off, there um, the election was stalled at a tie uh, with four challenged ballots. And that was like two months ago. It's ridiculous that it takes that long to investigate four challenged ballots. But um, so the investigation came up that the, uh, apparently three of them were deemed ineligible to vote. Uh, and so they were not counted, but one of them was, and that one vote was a yes vote, and so it broke the tie in favor of the union. Scottsboro Starbucks workers become the second unionized Starbucks workforce in Alabama, following the lead of Birmingham Starbucks workers, who won a blowout election, 27-1. Um, so really, really proud of them, really excited about their win, and... Um, Looking forward to getting some Union coffee nearby in Scottsboro yeah, here I'm soon. Just really proud for them, and and mm-hmm. they fought incredibly hard. Yeah, uh, it's been a tough journey for them and a difficult journey, and I know they've they've dealt with a lot, not just from management, but even you know, in some cases from family, from the community, mm-hmm. uh, and so yeah, that's a huge victory, and I think it should inspire folks all over no matter where you're at if, if if some young folks at starbucks in scottsboro alabama can take on a billion dollar corporation and win what can you do yep exactly exactly young people like 16 year olds as young as 16 <laughs> yeah um yeah so really really cool really proud of them um exciting stuff looking forward to keeping in touch with them and seeing seeing what they do i mean most of the teachers listening if there's any teachers listening they would probably <laughs> say i have trouble getting 16 year olds to put their name on the paper mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they forget to write their name and date yeah. uh and these folks organized a union how about yeah. that how about that yeah so but that's not even i and i totally forgot about that but that's not even what i was talking about what I was wanting, to, what I was going to get to, is that you know the these folks across the country they're doing, um, you know they're they're doing this for a few different reasons. You know, some of the people are, are motivated to form their unions to lock in some of the things that they like about their workplace, right? You know, not everything is motivated by uh, just 
totally horrid, rancid working conditions. Some of it's motivated by, I like my job, and I want to keep it, I want to keep some of these things that I like. I want to uh, protect it from, you know, the unpredictable whims of my boss, right? Um, some of them, however, are uh, to have, uh, to, to, you know, rectify long-standing issues about, you know, scheduling and things like this, Um some of it's just to have a say over future changes. Maybe there's not even a particular thing that they have an opinion on. It's just they want to be able to have an opinion about what comes next for their workplace. And workers should have that. The people who actually do the work for a corporation should have some say over what comes next, over the changes that the company implements. And uh, one of the things about this campaign that's really noticeable is that it is led by the baristas themselves talking to one another, telling their stories, airing their grievances, um, and organizing each other. Uh, one barista did that last week. He spoke about some of the conditions of his workplace, having to work 25 hours in a week, including eight-hour shifts on both Saturday and Sunday, all while going to college full-time. He spoke about being understaffed, about not having on the folks, uh, not having enough folks on the floor during a rush. Managers calling out during a short, sta uh, short-staffed shift. Managers calling out during a shift where there aren't enough people on the floor, leaving their workers to do everything for them. And I think that these are all le super legitimate complaints, right? These are all super legitimate complaints. And if and everybody that's been in the service industry, I've worked in the service industry, I have gotten in, uh, you know, I have been in a place where that really weighed on me a lot, having to deal with all this stuff. You know, I worked when I was in college, I only worked 12 hours a week. I did just one day on Saturday. I would work 12 hours. I would work open to close, um, and I would work 12 hours, and that would be the only time that I worked during the week um, and uh, at, at the restaurant. And then I worked like 10 hours uh, during the during the week uh, here and there at variously an internship where I work now, and then as a legal assistant. So I know you know almost exactly what this guy's going through, and that was really difficult. <laughs> you know, of course there are other people who have other difficulties that may or may not be greater or lesser in degree, but it is difficult to juggle full-time college with 24, 25 hours of work in a week. That's a lot to juggle, especially when your job is not properly staffing. It's when your job is placing more work on you than can be physically done in a certain time period and putting you in front of irate customers who are going to be badgering you over something that is actually not even your fault. It's not your fault that you're short-staffed. It's not, And so, therefore, it's not your fault that their drinks are taking a long time or it's not your fault, in my case, that their burgers was taking a long time. Uh, it's the fault of the management who did not schedule enough people to man the customers, to man the demand, right? And so these are real complaints, and that can really frustrate somebody, that can make somebody emotional having to go through all of this because it's not fun being yelled at for what are, in effect, your manager's fault. That's not fun. And so this, you know, uh, this young man was being very vulnerable, and, and he shared this story, and uh, right-wing weirdos don't think that's a legitimate thing to do. 
They think that you should just be quiet and be stoic and take all of the punishment that your billionaire boss uh, throws on you. I mean, this is a, what, all of this, if you look up right now, and this, this young man is a trans person, if you look up right now trans barista on YouTube, it's disgusting the amount of people that are going on, going on about this, that are attacking this person for fighting against his company that are, in effect, the, in effect, what they're doing is white knighting for Howard Schultz. And they're trying to make it seem like they're fighting against the woke elites or whatever, right? Because this is a barista, and barista are part of the PMC or the professional managerial class, or, or they're not actually productive laborers or whatever folks want to say. And it's, uh, it, I mean, they're just having a field day with it, laughing at this worker and, and pretending, pretending that his chief complaint was working an eight-hour day. When obviously, if you watch this video, the chief complaint is not that he had to work an eight-hour day. The chief complaint is that he's having to work eight hours a day on Saturday and Sunday while going to college full-time, while being understaffed, while management is leaving you high and dry. Uh, you know, these are all the things, and these are the things that they're trying to unionize to push back against. But you're going to see a, just a deluge of videos from, from folks like Matt Walsh, from Michael Knowles, from Sebastian Gorka. Our, our own local right-wing weirdos here in Huntsville did this. Millions of views uh, in totality just attacking this guy and caping for the company. One of the funnier things that I saw was like Matt Walsh saying that sometimes he works 11 or 12 hours a day and then he takes care of his kids and I don't complain about it. It's like, yeah, well, you know, I think being a barista at Starbucks is dif is is more difficult than what Matt Walsh does. <laughs> that's yeah, that's a hot so. take. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, I bet you don't want to trade places. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. And they make significantly mess, less money than he does, you know, working for a millionaire who works for billionaires, right? It's just really, really disgusting. And and it's trying to, and, and all of these millions of views are coming from, in, in a lot of time, in, in a lot of cases, working class people. And what's happening is that these people are trying to turn working class people against each other. They're trying to set, they're trying to tell you steelworker or coal miner or whatever look at this privileged guy he's complaining about this and and really you know misrepresenting the complaints this is your enemy it's not your boss just like his enemy is his boss your enemy's not your boss your enemy is this guy who's making your coffee for some reason that's your enemy and of course, who does that help? It helps Howard Schultz. It helps coal mine bosses if coal miners are not focused on fighting for their rights at work. It doesn't help coal miners. Right. Well, it, and I mean, it ties into what you discussed this morning, or, or and we had Terry on talking about her article and the appeals that Republicans are making for workers. And it's very obvious that they don't see working class they don't define class in the way that most folks would kind of see it uh 
class in their eyes is not related to production or ownership. Mm-hmm. It's a cultural affect. Right. It's a it's a cultural identity. It's as much about how you consume as it is how you actually make the living. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the there there's certainly a trend uh, within the right to and and in some cases even within mainstream liberalism to divide up working class people along various other demographic lines or cultural lines, uh, even by industries, mm. right? Pitting service sector folks against uh, the trades, all that. It's it's just, that's why folks have to understand what what class you're in right. and, and what a class is and that, what do you own? Right. Who owns what? Who, who operates it? Exactly. Exactly. So we've got Mark Dudzik in the Zoom now. Mark Dudzik is chair of the labor campaign for single-payer health care, and he was the national organizer for the U.S. Labor Party that formed in 1996, and he and that's what he's here to talk to us yeah. about today. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us about this. Have we got... Mark, can you hear us? Let's see here. There I go. I'm sorry, I was muted. Oh, it's all good. <laughs> no worries. We no got worries. You now. Yeah, appreciate How you taking you? the time to talk to us today. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to be here. Right, right. So, you know, Mark, I think the first thing when you know, so so I, I wanted to talk to you about the the U.S. Labor Party because I think that, that experiment in in the '90s was really interesting. It was interesting, I think, for the time period that it came up in. It was interesting for, you know, what y'all did. And and, and I, I read about it in Jacobin. Um, I read an interview that you gave them back in 2015. Um, and then I, I listened to an interview that you gave to the Jacobin show about a year ago. And I read your piece that you wrote in 2012 as a kind of postmortem of, of the Labor Party. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I hope that we'll, we'll get into some of, some of what was discussed in those areas and maybe some of uh, some other things. But I think the first thing to do when we're talking about the U S labor party from the nineties is, um, you know, why did you feel like you needed a different party from the Republicans and the Democrats? Um, I, I wasn't around in the nineties, uh, at least in a political way, you know, I was, part of the 90s i was i was physically around but you know <laughs> but the rest of it i i literally wasn't but you know i can imagine that union leadership did similar things that they do today regarding politics and politicians that really frustrates me which is not to level with me as a union member and say look republicans want to destroy you and eat your children <laughs> and and democrats don't want to destroy you as much, right? <laughs> and so, and they're they're a better enemy to have. The Democrats are, and which is more or less my calculation, right? I, you know, uh, and I I think that they're the lesser of two evils, and I think that that's an adult way, you know, a mature way to look at the two parties that we have right now. And but they they put out what what in my mind are, are just really really gross statements fawning statements about how amazing Biden is and how, you know, the best president ever or this politician is a champion for working people uh, to, to folks that just really, you know, factually aren't right. And, and, you know, so what was your pitch to folks like that back then? 
that are really kind of bought into the idea that that not only are Democrats a lesser of e of the two evils, but they're actually they're actually really good. I love Democrats. What was your pitch to those folks? Well, we didn't really have to make much of a pitch inside the labor movement in the mid 1990s. I mean, I think, um, you know, I, I'd been active in the trade union movement since the 70s um, and really witnessed this horrific uh, assault on um, workers in the United States that began in the late 1970s and would really intensified under the uh, the Reagan and the the Bush presidencies um, um, in the 1980s into the early uh, 1990s. Um, you know the sort of uh, the symbolic moment for all of that was. Um, the Patco strike in 1981, when Ronald Reagan um, replaced 13,000 striking air traffic controllers, uh, permanently replaced them, and kind of set the signal that this was open, open season on union busting. So, uh, so we, you know, suffered through this, you know, incredible assault in the uh, uh, late 70s, uh, 80s into the early 90s. Um, that at the time we called it Reaganism. I guess now, you know, you might call it neoliberalism. Um, and then in 1992, you know, there was this beginning of a political revival and a guy named Bill Clinton got elected president. Um, and, you know, he was a Democrat for the first time in 12 years. Um, and there was a lot of hope that maybe we could begin to change. We wanted to do some modest labor law reform. We wanted to make it illegal to um, permanently replace striking workers. You know, the U.S. has this weird loophole in our labor law. It says they can't fire you for striking, but they can permanently replace you, which is, you know, you try to figure out the difference when you're standing on the uh, the line to the food bank. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, uh, we wanted to reform labor law. We wanted real health care reform. We wanted to begin to make progress. So Bill Clinton got elected, but he got elected by, you know, kind of embracing a kinder, gentler version of Reaganism or a kinder, gentler version of neoliberalism. So instead of, you know, an opening um, for workers' rights and the ability to organize and to fight back, you know, we had he he put absolutely no political capital into labor law reform. He totally screwed up health care reform by uh, embracing a market-based approach to healthcare reform rather than expanding uh, uh, Medicare uh, and public health care programs. And then that, you know, that all fell apart and got attacked by uh, corporate interests. Um, you know, he attacked poor people and scapegoated poor people, went after um, uh, people who were receiving public assistance programs and and sort of instituted this whole idea of, of you know, workfare, that you have to work for substandard wages in order to be eligible for any kind of social benefits. And then the capper of all the cappers was that he pushed through um, um, the NAFTA agreement, the free trade agreement with uh, Mexico in uh, in the mid 90s. Uh, this is something that the uh, neoliberals and the Reaganites had been uh, foaming at the mouth for for decades, you know, decades, the ability to um, um, uh, remove all of the constraints to globalization and be able to move uh, move work offshore um, at a moment's notice with no restrictions um, in, in either direction into places where workers had, you know, substandard uh, conditions and no real rights to organize. And 
um, you know, it that really opened up the floodgates uh, for this period of globalization. And so people in my world um, were more than ready to break with the Democrats in the 1990s. And, you know, we certainly had the lesser of two evils problems. But, you know, the real question was, you know, how can we how can we achieve this break? How can we do this break without, um, you know, completely making things worse during the transition? But there, this was a moment where, you know, it's an extreme disenchantment with uh, the promises of a, uh, a corporate controlled Democratic Party, coupled with a period where labor was beginning to wake up again and fighting back and, you know, embracing some new ideas. So that was that was sort of the moment that gave rise to this Labor Party effort. I think that, you know, when I was reading your piece from from 2012, um, reviewing, you know, your assessment of of a sort of rising tide within the labor movement of an, an increased interest in militancy and, um, you know, that the formation of the Labor Party coincided with the um, the new voices slate, or, or uh, you know, the the slate, the uh, the slate of reformers that was elected to the AFL uh, CIO executive board in the '90s, um, and and you know there was some real interest in, uh, from what I can tell, and and from your recounting of it, in some of these new ideas, uh, go or or even you know to a certain extent going back to older ideas of militancy and and organizing workers uh, that we're seeing, you know, that is in some ways it seems analogous to now that there is you know a renewed interest in in labor and and so I think that it's important for us to kind of review what happened because obviously the result of that renewed interest from within labor in the 90s didn't turn the tide for workers in America and so you know how can we you know how can we learn the lessons from from that era uh, to try to to try to make it different this time and I, I think that's something that's that's you know pretty important to do and so what was the uh, and y'all did a lot of work, before the founding convention, um, you know, you didn't just say we're going to be a labor party. Um, it, you know, in in your article uh, to assuage the consciences of the politically pure, right? You know, you uh, that's not that's not why you wanted to. You didn't want to give people just just give them a choice, right? You know, you wanted the labor party to be a real thing, to have a real grounding in in. Uh, in the labor movement and in the communities where you were going to be running candidates. And so talk to us about some of that work that y'all did before the founding convention in 96 for, you know, the five years or more uh, that y'all were working as the labor party advocates. Yes. I mean, you know, for the beginning, we thought we needed to take what we call an organizing approach to politics. That is building, you know, building out a real constituency and building out uh, kind of political relationships that are organic um, and connect, you know, a political party to real actual people rather than to a kind of a network of funders and um, um, advertisers uh, that American politics has become. So we try to be very thoughtful and systematic about it. One of the first things we uh, we did was we developed a very simple political views uh, um, survey that uh, we challenged local and uh, regional union leaders to administer to their members because, you know, when we would talk to, you know, particularly like local union leaders who are in the grassroots and are, you know, understand how difficult uh, 
it is to uh, represent workers under this current political system. You know, they'd say, yeah, it's a great idea, but the members aren't ready for it. So we said, why don't you ask your members? So we developed a survey that asked uh, people what they felt about both political parties and whether they felt it was time to uh, to launch a labor party. And, you know, we found out that, you know, everybody from uh, school teachers in Wisconsin to coal miners in Virginia agreed that neither political party represented workers' interests and that the time had come to begin to explore having a party of our own. So that kind of created some legitimacy to uh, uh, to begin to develop uh, momentum uh, for uh, uh, thinking about how we can uh, break with the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, the second thing I think that we did that was very important is that we wanted to make sure that the folks who were at the center of this effort, who were, you know, kind of leading this effort, were people who actually represented uh, working class people, that they weren't just a bunch of self-chosen um, um, profits, um, you know, that they they were in the trenches fighting on behalf of working people and were accountable to working people. So, you know, we had convened an early meeting um with about 75 or 80 uh, union leaders who represented about half a million workers. And, you know, we we tried to use that as a basis to uh, uh, begin to talk to people. And then the other thing I think that we did was we developed some really systematic uh, educational materials that, you know, were based on a worker-based education model where participa participatory education, you know, where people began to uh, understand how corporate power functions in our society and how to effectively organize around it. So we began to develop kind of a common um, um, understanding of the problems and a common consensus about where we need to go to uh, to solve those problems. And that we did, you know, going through the, uh, from the early 1990s, you know, right beyond the actual organization of the Labor Party at the 96 convention. And the the who were all the uh, what who were some of the main players in in this uh, you know as you were going into the uh, the Labor Party convention in in '96 uh, you know who were some of the le leaders of of the Labor Party advocates? Yeah, so the idea really kind of came out of my union, which was uh, the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, um, which is now part of the Steel Workers Union. Um, you know, we had just kind of had a lot of internal discussion about this. One of our leaders was a guy named Tony Mizaki, who, you know, was kind of a labor visionary. He was uh, probably the person most most responsible for the passage of the Occupational Health and Safety Act in 1970 and kind of redefined the struggle for health and safety as a struggle against corporate power, built alliances with the environmental movement. So Tony was a real visionary and had a lot of respect in our union. Um, and, you know, so he kind of opened up a discussion. Uh, he ran for national office with a, on a unity slate in 1988. And one of the planks of that slate was that we would begin to explore the possibility of launching a labor-based political party. So we had a mandate uh, to move forward. Um, we worked with some other unions that had been historically very supportive of these kind of efforts, like the United Electrical Workers, uh, the UE, and uh, the Longshore Union on the West Coast, the ILWU. And then a bunch of other unions began to join in on this. Um, you know, the AFGE, a Federation of Government Employees, you know, the, the uh, Al Gore 
had, uh, again, this neoliberalism with a human face had come up with this idea called reinventing government, which was basically, you know, um, subcontracting out government work mm -hmm. and putting a thumb on the, the backs of government employees. Um, and, um, you know, this was supposed to, you know, reignite faith in government, blah, blah, blah. But it was, you know, basically another squeeze on government employees. So they were you know, outraged about, you know, how both parties had sort of betrayed them. Uh, the uh, Union of Railroad Workers, the Brotherhood of Maintenance of Way employees joined up. They uh, had a contract imposed on them by Congress, which, by the way, may be happening real soon again. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, they had organized, uh, you know, an effective threat to shut down the railroad industry and Congress basically forced them back to work, you know, with a contract that they legislated on their own backs, uh, Democratic Congress. Uh, so, uh, you know, they joined the fight as some of the newer unions, uh, the union that became the National Nurses uh, United uh, at the time it was California Nurses, National Nurses Organizing Committee. Um, you know, they were, a, you know, a, a vibrant union that had just sort of evolved, um, you know, into a real vibrant organizing union. And they, you know, they embraced this group, the Farm Labor Organizing Committee, a group of mostly um, uh, Latino uh, agricultural workers, um, you know, joined up with us. Uh, so those are the kind of groups that we attracted. And then a lot of, you know, old school industrial unions that had been under the gun, um, you know, the local leadership and some of the rank and file activists uh, were very much attracted to it. New activists in the Teamsters Union, SEIU, those were the folks that kind of came together. And at the founding convention, uh, you said that there were people, there were uh, 1,600 union members there and representing unions with half a million workers. Is that right? Um, by the time we went to the founding convention, I think there were 1,500 delegates. And I can't swear that they were all union members, but almost all of them were sent by their unions to be delegates there. Um, and I think we represented about 3 million workers by the time we uh, had our founding convention. Um, so... And so you what know, were we some of the things that what were some of the things that y'all did at the, at the founding convention? You know, you, you mentioned that there were there were speeches, but but what were the, you know, the debates and, and the resolutions and, and the platform and, and all that kind of stuff that came out of that convention? Yeah, well, the main thing was we, you know, we had to figure out what our national platform would be. Um, and we didn't want to, you know, do the sort of laundry list uh, of the left kind of a platform. We wanted to. Um, grounded in the sort of uh, uh, concerns and experiences of working people. So we actually had a, a process for about a year prior to the convention. We went around the country and hold here, held hearings and discussions at various union halls about what should be the key planks of our uh, uh, platform. And, you know, it was, uh, you know, we came together with a, a call for economic and social justice um, a lot of the planks of that platform are, you know, things that are just just becoming part of the uh, current political uh, dialogue and debate, 
right now, you know, uh, you know, we pushed for the right to organize. We pushed for adequate uh, family leave. We pushed for free higher education, which, by the way, you know, uh, the Sanders campaign basically adopted almost verbatim from uh, the, uh, the materials that we put together on uh, a free public higher education. Medicare for all, uh, you know, these were sort of the components of our platform. And we also tried to figure out how um, a party would begin to function, you know, during this sort of transition period when we didn't have the critical mass yet to do a uh, full uh, break and run uh, Labor Party candidates. So, you know, we developed a uh, beginning of an electoral approach, which sort of tried to figure out what would need to be in place to run effective electoral campaigns that weren't just sort of spoiler campaigns. Um, and we tried to figure out how this party would govern itself, you know, to make sure that um, unions would have a uh, key voice at the table, but that all kind of organizations uh, and groupings that represented working people would uh, be effectively represented and that, you know, we would also reflect the diversity of the U.S. working class. So we began to struggle with a lot of those uh a lot of those questions of how to build a, an, an effective party and how to run it effectively over time. I, I think that one of those questions about, you know, reckoning with the fact that we don't want to be a spoiler and, and, and you know, reckoning with that, I, I think it's such an important thing that, that y'all did that others uh, that that other third party movements uh you know and and I think like you said in your piece that that may assuage the consciences of the politically pure um it's not effective doesn't it hasn't really produced results and you also say it, this is from the article again quote unions and working people in general have real concrete interests and concerns which must be defended in the electoral arena even as we work to transcend the boundaries set by the two parties of the bosses the prospect of breaking completely with the democratic party without an established alternative was too risky for even the most militant unions and remains the biggest challenge to any effort to build an independent labor politics and you know recognizing that there is actually a real risk that they're not exactly the same and there is a risk to allowing republicans to take power that will hurt unions and working people and our communities and our families um what was the the decisions that y'all made what were the decisions that y'all made regarding that um at the 96 convention and then moving forward about how to how to work around that question well you know I mean, we never obviously found the real solution to that problem, you know, because the overwhelming threats coming from the Republican Party, you know, ultimately overwhelmed us um, in the early 2000s. But, you know, where we were heading was, you know, kind of you, you know, looking at what it would take to build power for working people that could move then into the electoral uh, uh, arena. So, you know, the, you know, the first thing, you know, in terms of what, how we looked at this process is we saw this as linked to a broader resurgence of a working class movement that went, you know, beyond politics. You know, the folks who won the AFL-CIO um, election in 95, the reformers, you know, they had a program um, which ultimately failed that, you know, was uh, they wanted to organize a million workers a year. Um, and we, you know, felt that if 
we were part of a labor movement that was bringing a million new workers, you know, in, in, into unions every year, um, that that kind of a labor movement would be the kind of labor movement that could um, break through and develop independent working class politics. When that resurgence, that brief little blip in the uh, labor movement in the mid 90s began to fade by the early 2000s, the prospects for independent politics kind of faded with them because we then had to, you know, uh, you know, as we did throughout the 80s, we had to circle the wagon you know, to protect what we had against the growing assaults, you know, with the, the George W. Bush administration and, you know, all of the attacks that took place uh, in the early 2000s. So, um, um, that you know, that was really the challenge was, you know, number one, understand that the only way you can do this is when you have a resurgent uh, movement that's active all across the board and, you know, in communities and the economic sphere, um, and then you can move into politics from a position of power. Um, and then secondly, you know, we wanted to, you know, really think about, you know, moving away from a dilettantish approach to politics of, yeah, we'll just, you know, put our names in and hope the people vote for us. You know, we wanted to, you know, make sure that anybody who wanted to run as a candidate really assessed what it would take to run an effective candidacy in a district. Did they have, you know, assess the level of uh, union support that they had in the district, uh, uh, understand how much money they would need to raise to run an effective campaign, have a organization on the ground capable of running. If you can't even put poll watchers into every precinct in a uh, constituency that you want to run in, it's, it's an indicator of, you know, the lack of organization, the lack of serious organization that you would need to uh, effectively run a candidacy. So we tried to take, you know, that kind of very serious approach to um, building political power um, and, you know, begin to move it. And, you know, had we had some more time, had the labor movement uh, continue to um, um, grow and expand uh, and challenge corporate power in other arenas, you know, perhaps perhaps we could have achieved escape velocity. Right, right. It you mentioned that uh, in your in your interview with uh, the Jacobin show on YouTube about a year ago, you um, you mentioned that you don't think that it, it you know that there's that a labor party that's created now couldn't only have unions at the center of it, and and you know you said in your 2012 piece that that you know, the Brazilian Workers' Party and the NDP in Canada were kind of, you know, models that y'all looked at. Um, and I wonder if the, the what you said last year about the need to have social movements in addition to unions and worker centers and these other, you know, alternative labor organizations and community organizations represented in a quote-unquote labor party were you taking inspiration there from the moss in bolivia because that that seems to be the model that they use there to elect avo and and that group of folks and in, in that party i wonder if if you know uh that has played into your understanding of, of what it would take to have a, a winning political coalition yeah, you know, I think primarily what I I'm looking at is sort of the development within the U.S. working class, where the centers of gravity for working class organization are moving to. Um, you know, the the structures that make it hard for workers to join unions, you know, are still in place. And but you know, the problems that workers face 
you know, workers are going to try to come up with other ways to resolve those problems if they can't do the best solution, which is to organize unions and negotiate contracts. So, you know, workers centers, you know, other kinds of community organizations, insurgencies, immigrant organizing, you know, all of these things have sort of evolved over the last 20 years and matured in ways that, uh, you know, they weren't really there, you know, in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And unions were much more, you know, they were probably uh, double the union density back in the mid 90s, you know, it was mm -hmm. probably, I don't remember the numbers, but it was probably, you know, uh, you know, 18% as opposed to nine or 10%. So um, right. unions were much more, uh, you know, even in their weakened state in the 90s, had much more influence within the working class. Um, you know, you can go drive hundreds of miles in uh, through the South and not encounter a single union member nowadays. Mm -hmm. And, um, um, you know, so that that's a reality. And, you know, we have to think about, uh, you know, where uh, where you can develop vibrant working class organizations. And those folks need to come together to think about independent labor politics. You know, the other obvious uh, thing of interest is to take a hard look at Bernie Sanders' two campaigns for the presidency and how, where that, uh, how that developed and the support. Because, you know, basically, you know, while trying to run within the Democratic Party, uh, which is probably the only space that exists right now to do this stuff, you know, he, he ran on a very sophisticated, independent working class politics program. And, you know, uh, there's a lot to be learned from uh, those experiences uh, over the last uh, six or seven years. Does uh, does the experiences of the last six or seven years with Bernie Sanders running pretty effectively, even though not winning the nomination for the presidency um, and DSA electing candidates mostly as Democrats, occasionally as independents, uh, across the country in state legislatures and a few in Congress, does that change? Does that change your calculation at all about the need for a uh, a quote unquote you know officially independent um, party that does break from the Democratic Party, or do you think that maybe it's it's just as good to be a parasite on the Democrats and and use their ballot line um, for uh, you know a sub independent organization i think for the moment the the battleground for working class politics is probably within the democratic party almost everywhere in the country uh i think ultimately to think that we're independent working class politics can coexist with the kind of corporate power that also exists in the democratic party you know, that's a mistake that our politics is always going to end up being stunted, crushed, compromised, diluted, you know, uh, under those structures. So we got to find a way to escape uh, those structures. Ultimately, ultimately, there has to be some kind of a break. We need a party of our own, whether we take out over the Democratic Party and throw out the corporate uh uh, Democrats, whether we leave that party from a position of strength, uh, form our own, whether we do some kind of inside-outside uh, inside, uh, approach for some period of time. Uh, you know, there's some people like uh, Seth Ackerman at the Jacobin have written some very interesting 
um, scenarios around that, thinking about how the legal structures of political parties could be used. You know, I, I think that's a, you know, that will begin to emerge from our own practice as uh, organizers. Um, I don't think that there's a set formula. You know, there's some people who believe that, you know, unless you, you know, completely break with the Democratic Party and and call your party a workers party. It's not a real party, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, you know, I, I think you have to be really flexible and understand, you know, what what is the cutting edge for independent working class politics at the moment that you're trying to organize. Ultimately, workers need a party of their own. It's the only way that we're gonna really advance our interests. And that's, you know, it's the big unfinished task of the US working class. And it's why we don't have healthcare as a right. It's why we have such low union density in this country. It's why we don't have uh, you know, adequate leave to take care of our families. It's why uh, it's almost illegal for workers to organize in unions. All of these reasons are because we lack the political power that workers in most other uh, advanced countries in the world and in places like Bolivia, you know, have figured out how to do. Um, and we got to figure this out one way or another. And it's our great, it's a great challenge that, you know, hopefully we can pass on to this new generation of uh, of engaged working class uh, activists and leaders who are beginning to come together. What do you think are the biggest lessons to take from the experiment in the 90s and the early 2000s uh, uh, within the labor movement to build a labor party? So... A working class party has got, you know, got to be organically connected to its working class constituency. It cannot be self, you know, self-proclaimed. Um, you know, we Tony Mazaki always had the union hall dictum. And he said, if you can't pass an issue through your own union at your local union hall, don't bring it here to the Labor Party to try to pass, you know, and expect us to do something. You know, we have to build this that's organically connected to the needs and the aspirations of uh the people that we want to organize. Um, I think that that's really, you know, that, that that kind of a model for how to build power for working people is got to be central to any party building project. And it's got to be linked to this broader challenge of building a working class movement. Um, and then, you know, I think um, we we just have to be, you know, really analytical about how um, difficult it is to continue to advance our interests within the structures of the Democratic Party. You know, what what happened post-Bernie in 2020 was very, very interesting, how the party structures came together to kill a lot of these progressive initiatives, you know. But on the other hand, you know, we have a Biden administration that is more responsive to workers' needs than the last two Democratic administrations uh, were. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, provides some opportunity for us to maneuver and to to build some power. But you know, I think you got to keep your eye on the long-term goal of, of developing a real independent working class politics and, and how that moves tactically through all these uh, difficult uh, barriers that uh, the U.S. political system sets up for those kind of kind of challenges. And I think that you said in, in some of your some of your writing or some of your interviews that that you know the first step to making that happen is is really building is really building power kind of on the shop floor, expanding unions, uh, you know, um, organizing. Right? <laughs> it's not necessarily um, it's not necessarily venturing out into electoral p politics before you have that base of power. 
Yeah, that's generally the case. Although, you know, we're in a difficult time right now. And, um, you know, we have to be we have to contend in the electoral arena or we're going to lose what little that we currently have. You know, the these people who are, you know, uh, threatening to take over the both houses of Congress, you know, are going to go after our Social Security and our Medicare mm-hmm. and they're going to make it even harder for workers to organize. You know, they're going to challenge some of the uh, the rulings that the current National Labor Relations Board has made to, uh, um, you know, at least force uh these corporations to, you know, adhere to some basic, uh, basic standards when you're running a union campaign, you know, those type of things, you know, we gotta, we gotta figure out how to be there and how to mobilize in those areas. And, you know, what's so frustrating is you can play those kind of defensive games for decades and be worse off at the end than you were at the beginning. So, you know, you've got to couple that with a, some kind of a vision and a plan for how we can advance both politically and, and along a broad range of social and economic uh, bases. Yeah. Adam, do you have any questions for Mark or anything? Well, I just wanted to thank you for your time, first of all, and, and for your service to the movement for so many years. And uh, really what I'm thinking about is Alabama specifically and kind of stepping away from the national scene and looking at Alabama because right now we have a supermajority uh, Republican control of the entire state government apparatus and, and most of the local governments outside of Birmingham, Mobile, and, and the Black Belt. And the Democratic Party is unable to contest uh, more than half of the elections. And so we're in a situation in Alabama where maybe unlike many other places, we wouldn't play a spoiler. You know, if, if Right now, on the books, there was an Alabama Labor Party that could field candidates. Mathematically speaking, we wouldn't spoil any election because when the Democrats are losing by 20 to 30 percent across the board, (laughs) you know, uh, it's not a big enough pie. It doesn't matter how many times we cut it. So that's what's going on in my mind. And I don't know that I necessarily have a question per se, but I'm really thinking about... um, this experience that y'all had in the 90s and kind of the lessons to, to bring forward into this current moment and how that may apply to Alabama and what those of us here in the Alabama labor movement may need to be thinking about in the conversations we need to have uh, because we are completely on the outs. Uh, there is no working class representation inside of Alabama's political structure. And um, in our case, you know, the Democratic Party hardly seems more viable than just starting something from scratch. And so I think that's that's something we have to wrestle with down here in Alabama. And I don't know if you have any, you know, kind of thoughts or reactions to that, but that's uh, what's really resonated with me in this conversation. Just an, an interesting addendum to that, Adam, and that, that you might find, uh, you know, kind of uh, funny, Mark, is that the Libertarian Party in Alabama has put more candidates on the ballot than the Democratic Party. Huh. I didn't know that. That that's sad. I'm not sure. I, you know, in a sad, funny kind of way, I guess. Yeah. But, right. You know, I mean, one of the, one of the projects we tried doing um, is uh, we we tried to launch uh, the South Carolina Labor Party as a, an electoral par- party in the early 2000s, and it actually still exists. Um, as an electoral party in South Carolina, it never, it, for a lot of reasons, it's 
hasn't uh, developed uh, ways that we hoped for in the early 2000s. But, you know, our and our calculation was exactly what you just said. You know, we had a, the South Carolina, especially in the early 2000s, had a Democratic Party that embraced right to work and other anti-labor mm -hmm. legislation. Um, and, it, you know, extraordinarily disrespected its base, which was the black working class voters in South Carolina. Um, and so we thought that there would be a, there's an opportunity there to begin to talk about a, a new way for what did we call it? Another voice for South Carolina. And we actually um, to get an electoral registration in South Carolina, you had to um, um, petition with voters from I think it was every county in the state. So we went out and uh, talked to um, working class people in South Carolina at places like, uh, you know, uh, flea markets and swap meets and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And uh, um, signed up 16,000 of them signed a petition to uh, uh, call for a Labor Party in South Carolina. So it was a it's a real interesting uh, effort. You know, it kind of floundered because right as we were getting ready to launch it, Obama threw his hat into the ring nationally. Uh, the African-American community in, in particular really saw this as a, you know, very exciting opportunity. And then we would have been a spoiler in that vision. Um, and, you know, we had to kind of step down and whatever. But, um, you know, the uh, the actual act of going out there and talking to working class people, especially in a state where you don't have like structures like unions where you can talk to them sort of organically, you know, through, you know, their leaders and things. Was a you know I think that's the way we can begin to build these things and by you know when you talk, you know what do they say when you're an organizer you're supposed to listen seventy percent of the mm -hmm. time and talk thirty percent I mean that's the kind of um, grassroots party building efforts that I think it would take in a place like Alabama but you know working class Alabamans you know I'm sure have massive grievances and some of them are distorted by you know racial prejudices and cultural things and they're played by you know both the democrats and the republicans um you know um but you know i think if you all thought about how to sit down and have those kind of kitchen table conversations with working class people you might be able to you know over time begin to build a real movement of uh working working class people that could challenge politically um, in a place like Alabama. And you're right, it is, you know, you're not being a spoiler when, a, you know, the other party can't get close to 20% of what right. the main party. So, uh, <laughs> right. you know, there's not a lot at play there. They're not going to, you know, the national... Or if they're not contesting it at all. You know, you're right. definitely yeah. not a spoiler if there's no Democrat. Right? Yeah, no, that that's a huge <laughs> opportunity, I think, for, uh, you know, in, in uncontested uh districts and things you know to to think about building something and uh um going in there but you know it has to be organic it has to come from from the people can't just fly a bunch of folks in and you know expect that you know the young socialist from new york city mm -hmm. is going to have the same appeal in uh rural alabama that she has in uh brooklyn so uh um, right, right. You know, got to really emerge from the lived experiences of uh, working class people. Well, and I think that if there's something hopeful to kind of leave with, there is a, a labor movement here, just as there is across the country that is resurgent, uh, which means new leaders are being formed in the struggle yep. at the workplace and in the broader community. And, you know, who knows? 
uh, maybe some of these uh, coal miners in Brookwood and Amazon workers in Bessemer uh, and CWA workers in Auburn, maybe these are the the future leaders of, of, a, of a political formation for and by working class people in Alabama. And um, I just wanted to, last thing, Mark, you might want to know that next week we interview the newly elected chair of the Alabama Democratic Party. So if you think of any good <laughs> questions for us, uh, send them our way and, and we'll put them on the hot seat. I might tune into that interview. <laughs> All right. uh, I think it'll be fun. It should be interesting. <laughs> should be interesting that's for sure but thank you so much for for sharing your wisdom with us and and uh you've given me a lot to chew on for sure uh, was, this was great it's great to talk to people who are really trying to seriously think through these issues so thanks yeah, for I mean, having it, me it, absolutely i mean it, it's definitely something that we've you know we are uh, you know we have uh, uh, reorganized the north alabama labor council here um back in 2020 is when we were rechartered um and, and, you know, the Labor Council here was dechartered, right? We have, we, you know, we have tens of thousands of union members in North Alabama didn't have a Labor yeah. Council. Um, so, mm-hmm. so you know, yeah. that's something that, that, that we've definitely thought about, you know, just because there's so many uncontested races. You know, why the hell not do like a North Alabama Labor Party um, if, if that's something that, that the folks are interested in? So we'll who see. knows? We'll see. We'll yeah. see. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. That's I appreciate your time. Keep an eye on you Thanks. Appreciate it. All right, brother. We're going to wrap up with a segment that I forgot to play in overtime last week, the the October labor history that Adam recorded uh, for for last week. So we'll go ahead and play that, and then we'll wrap up the show. Um, So, yeah, Adam, let's go ahead and play that clip. All right, folks, Adam Keller here, and it's time to do a little bit of October labor history. So as we close out the month of October, I wanted to take a few minutes to share some of the October anniversaries in labor history. I compiled this information primarily from the 2022-23 edition of Planning to Change the World, a plan book for social justice educators. This excellent planner is published by the Education for Liberation Network, and I wanted to make sure I gave them full credit. So let's get started. October 1st was the first day of Disability Employment Awareness Month which aims to raise awareness about disability employment issues and celebrate the contribution of workers with disabilities. October 1st was also the first day of LGBT History Month, which celebrates the lives and achievements of LGBT people. October 5th was World Teachers Day, which was inaugurated in 1994 to commemorate the signing of the UNESCO ILO recommendation concerning the status of teachers in 1966. Shout out to all the hardworking teachers who are making a difference in the lives of young people and in the broader community. 110 years ago, on October 9th, was the start of the Little Falls textile strike in New York. A mostly immigrant female workforce called the Red Sweater Girls at two textile mills began a wildcat strike to force their employer to follow a new state law limiting the work week for women and children to 54 hours. Several thousand workers participated, aided by organizers from the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World. Despite violent police oppression, the workers held out, and on January 3, 1913, they won the shortened work week with no reduction in pay. While recognized as the Columbus Day holiday in some quarters, October 10th was Indigenous Peoples Day, 
which began as a counter-celebration to Columbus Day in Berkeley, California. The goal was to commemorate Native American history and promote Native American cultures. And I'll add, in recent years, I've seen a significant shift in consciousness around the heroic myths surrounding Christopher Columbus and the true genocidal nature of Europe's colonization of the Americas. It's important to reckon with the real past so that we can understand our present and shape our future. October 17th is the International Day for the Eradication of Poverty, promoting the need to eradicate poverty worldwide, especially in the Global South. A good reminder of the struggles of so much of humanity, the reality that we can end poverty, and the urgent need to do so. October 18th is the 50th anniversary of the Clean Water Act, which is the primary federal law governing water pollution. The act aims at restoring and maintaining the chemical, physical, and biological integrity of the nation's waters. The Clean Water Act established national programs for the prevention, reduction, and elimination of pollution in navigable water and groundwater. It also set up water quality standards and required permits for discharge and treatment of wastewater and stormwater. Like all U.S. laws with even the potential to protect working people and our communities against corporate greed, the Clean Water Act has been under attack by capital and the right wing for these past five decades, and its future is at risk. And looking around our country, from the drinking water crisis in cities like Flint, Michigan and Jackson, Mississippi, to the droughts out west, to the ongoing sewage crisis in Alabama's Black Belt, it's obvious that we can and must do more to ensure everyone has a safe, reliable water supply. October 20th is the 80th anniversary of the Durham Manifesto issued by the Southern Conference on Race Relations held in North Carolina in 1942. The Durham Manifesto outlined the demands of black residents in the Southern US. Specifically, they demanded an end to segregation as well as voting rights and equal pay for black people. Keep in mind at the time, black Americans were being asked to fight overseas in the name of democracy while being denied basic civil and human rights at home. October 22nd is the National Day of Protest to Stop Police Brutality. The October 22nd Coalition to Stop Police Brutality, Repression, and the Criminalization of a Generation has been mobilizing annually to expose the epidemic of police brutality. Go to October22.org for more information on the national effort. Here in North Alabama and across the country, working class people, especially working class minorities, have been subjected to police violence, and I believe it's important for the labor movement to be clear in our opposition to police violence and work towards a more just, equitable society. October 22nd is also the 50th anniversary of the founding of SORWUK in Vancouver, British Columbia. The Service, Office, and Retail Workers Union of Canada was an independent union established by a founding convention of 24 women. Its goal was to represent and organize occupations that were excluded from the traditional trade unions of the time. Most of the workers SORWUK organized were women. Their legal battles centered around struggles for equal pay, maternity leave, living wages, legislation against sexual harassment, and gender and race-based discrimination in the workplace. October 23rd is the 120th anniversary of the end of the Great Anthracite Coal Strike, which lasted from May 12th to October 23rd, 1902. 
147,000 Pennsylvania coal miners went on strike over wages, working conditions, and union recognition. President Teddy Roosevelt appointed mediators to arbitrate the negotiations between the coal operators and miners because the strike threatened to shut down the winter fuel supply to all major cities, obviously creating great hardship for American citizens and businesses. The miners were able to achieve a 10% pay increase and a reduction in workday hours. October 29th is the 10th anniversary of the hurricane and superstorm Sandy. Sandy began in the, in the Bahamas on October 22nd and moved up the east coast of the U.S., making landfall on October 29th near Atlantic City, New Jersey. The storm caused more than 150 deaths and left more than $70 billion in property damage. The storm hit during a full moon and high tide, maximizing its destructive coastal flooding. The storm surge reached a record 13 feet. The disaster should have brought into focus the consequences of climate change. These disasters, which seem to be growing in both quantity and severity every year, disproportionately hurt working class people and continually expose how governments and businesses are ill-equipped ill to meet the needs of the people in times of crisis. The anniversary of Sandy is a good time to think about how we can grow and support mutual aid networks because ultimately, each other is all we got. Alrighty, folks, that is going to wrap it up today uh, on the Valley Labor Report for our overtime segment. We appreciate you listening. Uh, just a reminder to like, share, subscribe, all that good stuff. Support the program if you are able. You can do that at tvlr.fm slash donate or tvlr.fm slash store. But the liking and the sharing and the subscribing yeah. and the reviewing. Uh, that's an easy thing to do. If you haven't reviewed mm -hmm. us on Spotify yeah, or Apple or wherever, stars. just give us a five-star review. That helps. Every little bit helps, and yeah, uh, we really appreciate it. Absolutely. Uh, please do that. Consider getting your local to sponsor the show. Uh, all that really helps. Uh, so um, make sure that you donate to the coal miners uh, down in Brookwood if you have the money and all that good stuff. Uh, so And certainly, again, don't forget to vote on Tuesday. Don't forget, yeah. uh, if you missed it earlier, we did discuss the amendments. Uh, so if you want to check that out, maybe we can get that up standalone on YouTube by election yeah, day. Will. Yeah, um, I'll talk to Joe about that. And... Um, if you need some more resources, check out the League of Women Voters of Alabama. I found their guide to be very helpful. All right, folks. Y'all have a good weekend. Bye, y'all.